0: Hey there, good people in crypto land. This is Matt Lysing. This is my podcast, Decent People. Just a quick program note, we're taking a couple break, uh, a couple weeks off here, so um, there won't be any new episodes um, for a few weeks. But don't worry, we will be back with a whole new batch of interviews. And in the meantime, we're going to roll out some of our favorite episodes that we've recorded over the last year and a half or so, in case you missed them or wanted to hear them again. So hope you enjoy that. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you again soon.
1: For me, you know, this thing could not have come any sooner. I was greatly relieved when the bear market came because in a bull market, it doesn't matter what you've got. You can just go into like, you know, uh, shall I name names? I won't name names. But you can go into that mode where, um, you know, you create 17 different coins. Every one of them flops, but it doesn't matter because, you know, you already got your exit.
0: Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Lysing, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome to the conversation. On the show today, I'm really happy to have Eamon Goon who is the CEO and founder of the Avalanche blockchain. Goon, as everyone calls him, has been a real help to me over my career as a reporter, and he's one of the smartest people that I've run across in blockchain. Uh, To set the stage a little bit, Avalanche is a blockchain with a $4.7 billion market cap, and it processes about 2 million transactions per day. Uh, let's compare that to Ethereum, which has a hundred and sixty-four billion dollar market cap and can process about one million transactions per day. Um, we talk about Goon being raised in Istanbul, Turkey, and about large family meals and uh, how experiences there with Turkish infrastructure got him into thinking about systems that worked perfectly and could be relied upon. Um, we also talk about how crypto criticism goes back much farther than Satoshi Nakamoto's white paper. And we talk about what's new at Avalanche and where Goon sees things going in this middle of this crypto winter. So I hope you enjoy the show and let's get to it. Thanks. One quick disclaimer that I wanted to mention is that uh, Goon is personally an investor in Decentral Media. So I wanted to thank you for getting sick a few years ago. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure you remember this, but I'm going to say it anyway, because when I started first kind of reporting on the Dow hack and what had happened, I called you, and I was just asking you big questions about it to try to understand it. And you told me the story about being so sick in bed, and you were up with your computer, and you and your student, Phil Diane had you know kind of stumbled across this exploit and um that sort of anecdote just kind of gave me what i needed to to really like jump into this story and it led to the magazine piece then it led to the book and now it leads you know kind of like i'm on my journey but i can kind of almost trace all of that to you getting a cold in 2016 so i believe your son gave it to you so i think i'd probably want to thank him more than anything
1: (laughs) that's right that's right that was quite an instrumental cold um I, uh, me and Phil ended up missing. Uh, we came very close to identifying the Dow hack. We could have, uh, we could have prevented it had we identified it. But we uh, mistakenly concluded that there wasn't a bug on, on that fateful line six hundred and sixty-six.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, truth is stranger than fiction. Uh, how's your son doing now? He must be almost in school at this point.
1: Uh, he's seven. Yeah, he's doing great.
0: Thank uh, you. That's awesome. I can't imagine what he's going to be with you as his dad. That's going to be really fascinating to see how that all happens. Um, so, thank you very much for being here. Um, I just for listeners, you know, I've I've written a lot about Goon, and he's been he was in my book. He was a big part of um, Out of the Ether. So there, are, there's a lot of background that you can find on him, and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. But I did want to just sort of go back to your childhood. Um, You grew up in Istanbul in Turkey, um, part of a very large family. Uh, You you have told me before that your grandmothers and your aunts and your uncles, and there was always just a lot of commotion at your house. So I was wondering if you could just kind of set the scene for us. What, What was that like growing up in Istanbul at that time? And maybe for our younger listeners, you could kind of tell us what, the sort of technology you had access to back then was like, like, what was the television you had, or were you uh, able to get on a computer back then? And just kind of set the scene for us.
1: Sure. Um, let's see. Uh, we had a Love Opta, a black and white television, and uh, I think the Europeans might remember this. It was huge. It had its own closing like little shutter system, so you'd close it when it wasn't <laughs> transmitting. You had only one channel and uh, it was black and white, started at 5 p.m., ended at midnight. Uh, at 5 p.m. would be the um, the TV, the kids' TV shows for about half hour, sometimes for an hour. And um, it was great. It was a wonderful time to be a kid, to be a child. And uh, there was hardly any technology. And um, and then uh, it was a small country, like it felt like a small country, even though it was many millions of people, it felt like a small country. Um, the TV shows, I should mention, you know, like I'm, I'm of a certain age, but the stuff I saw is kind of like everybody else's parents' age because the country was so poor that the stuff we saw would be like multiple years behind the, the the tip of like what like right now you have simultaneous releases around the globe everybody watches everything at the same time we're all up to date part of a giant global community things were, were very different back then um, we were behind and uh and then of course also uh, in addition to you know like being behind in terms of time being set back watching the older tv shows from the us as they made their way to, uh, to Turkey, uh, there was also, you know, the ups and downs, our lives were pegged to how well the country did. You know, there were years when I remember it was fantastic. We would get, you know, the coolest TV shows or we would get co- the coolest uh, movies and so on. And there was a, a time period uh, around the time of the, the big oil crisis. When the country was so poor that uh, we ended up, uh, the, the, I remember this distinctly, that uh, kids' cartoons, we didn't have enough money as a country to buy them from, uh, from the U.S. or from Japan. So uh, they ended up going to Eastern Europe and uh, ended up getting this cat, Musti. I remember Musti <laughs> really well. It was uh, unlike the usual, you know, Japanese and American shows. Musti had, you know, like, they had scrapped of, you know, I don't know, five frames or something. It had this terrible frame and it kept talking with his hands going into the camera like this the whole time. But it was always the same motion. <laughs> so all the kids would do the Musti thing. They're like, hey, how is it going? So that was the Musti thing. It was a, it was a great time. There was hardly any tech. You would go to, you would go to the bank and, uh, you know, they had computers there's mainframes and they'd say, oh, you know, the mainframe is down. Can you come back the next day? Go yeah. to the airport, you know, they're like, oh, we're doing the manual check-in and then the line would be insanely long. Yeah. So most of the time when you wanted to get something, the technology just wasn't there. Um, and that played an, a, a critical role in, in shaping me. I, I wanted to step in and, and show the world that we could build reliable systems that never crashed.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and we'll get to that for sure. I remember I guess this must have been before ATMs. My mom, you know, when she wanted cash, she, there was a local um, liquor store, and they would cash a check for her, and that's how she got cash um, back in the you know mid to late seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think everyone's kind of familiar with what a big Italian kind of Sunday night dinner is. You know, it's like you know the grandmothers are there; they've got the pasta or the sauce cooking all day with the meatballs or the bruschetta and all that stuff, but i'd love to know what's what's a big turkish dinner like when your whole family's there and you've got your grandmothers from your time when you were a kid like what was the spread like and what do you remember about that
1: oh i remember this okay this is an interesting question no one's asked me this before but um you know how every kid has something they draw you leave them alone and they draw a picture of something Mm -hmm. usually it's a house or something else i always drew that dinner (laughs) Okay, that was my go to thing. I would draw the ginormous table with everybody's seats and then the forks. I would draw them crooked, of course, because my drawing is absolutely horrible. It was always the same dinner. Uh, Well, actually, it was two dinners. So there are two things we do that are sacred to me. One is the bluefish dinner, that is a big thing. I gather everybody. Uh, my mother was the matriarch of the, of our extended family, so all the uncles would come and visit from you know all of the extended uncles, and uh, their families, all my cousins would come by, and we'd have bluefish. This is a big thing. Uh, if you haven't had it before, or if you had it in Boston, they'd, people in Boston know this. Uh, it's it's okay in Boston, but it's fantastic. the The sea temperature is different in in Turkey, so if you have it in Istanbul, it's a it's an out of this world experience. It's amazing. I don't have you had it, Matt. I
0: haven't and I'm wondering is it like the whole fish you kind of bake it or something and then you serve it and
1: you kind of like head on and everything like that it's it's the whole fish grilled and uh you have to you we have to arrange something for you to visit me when i'm in istanbul and you're visiting it's going to be amazing because uh, there's nothing like it in this in this and there's a whole set of things that go with it because they all complement each other so the whole time you know uh, we here in the us or americans in general were working on you know building five exact duplicates of the same space shuttle and mm-hmm. conquering space yeah. you know imagine the amount of energy and effort and expertise and know-how that went into that Other countries put that exact same amount of effort and everything they got into other stuff to the best they could. And so this is one of the things that Turks put their effort into. And as a result, the, the resulting experience is amazing. So that, that's one of them. And then the other one is in the Sunday afternoons. On, on, a, on a Sunday afternoon, my mom makes Turkish ravioli and that's uh, that's another mm. thing. And so you eat that thing and then and everybody lies down on the <laughs> nearest couch and, uh,
0: <laughs> and then yeah. you just kind of sleep it
1: off. <laughs> yeah. so, so those are the two big family things. I grew up in a very big family. Um is constant intrigue internally, but as far as the external world is concerned, they are the best people on earth. So that's sort of my ethics and ethos.
0: That's great. That's great. And you mentioned um your desire to always want to build systems that were that worked, that functioned the way that they were meant to work and I, that Absolutely. that also kind of had some a tie back to Turkish uh imp- some of the infrastructure, right? You've told me stories about how the the windows would work, but they might not close exactly the the right way. And there'd be a draft or something. And that, 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 sort of like kind of got to you in a way, or I don't mean it got to you, but it kind of like set off a light bulb above your head of like, wait, I want to, I can do this better. Like, can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: It did. It absolutely did. So I think this is something that everyone, uh, knows from uh, from from you know from any developing country, you gotta cut corners, right? You want to get to some place, you gotta cut corners, and corners get cut when people are building infrastructure. Things were not back then; things were not built to the hundred percent level that we're all used to. You know, the windows would close, sure, but the the houses were drafty. The doors would close, but not with that satisfying click, yeah. and. Uh, and so what's happened uh, in, my, in my life, one of the transformative moments was um, when uh, I was 11. Um, so there's this big exam. Uh, it's, um, it's about one and a half million kids take it every year you know, back then. So I took that exam. If you're in the top 110 or so, uh, you get the right to go to this amazing high school, amazing middle school and then high school. Um, and uh, it's called Robert College. It's the first American high school outside of the US and it's in Istanbul. So I was kid number 21. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so I was admitted into Robert College and I didn't know what to expect. And I found myself at this in this gorgeous, beautiful building. It's unlike any high school you see in America. It's just really well built, huge place. Uh, And and it had a different ethos associated with the engineering there. So I remember walking into this ginormous hall with a huge door. And I opened the door. It's very heavy. I'm a tiny little kid by then, you know, like a little... Little stingy little guy. Open the door, and it closes behind me with a satisfying click. And then I was like, "Oh my God, this is this is a different universe." And things just worked. Like everything about that place was designed so as to make the right things happen. And uh, and it was sort of like a it was like a, a bubble there almost. Uh, and and so that really got me uh, excited about generally uh, generally engineering and, and, and you know overall but specifically on building things that work perfectly every time. And, um, uh, you know, we kind of take it, sometimes we're granted in certain areas, uh, but it, it's it's really an ongoing fight. You got to have that sort of ingrained in your DNA. And it was, mm-hmm. it was started back then for me.
0: Did you have a plan back then, like getting into the American high school? I know that was obviously something you wanted to do. But was that just like a step in the process of what you thought? Like, was it always, were you always thinking... I'm going to do this, and then I want to go to the United States for college and later in my life? Or did things just sort of kind of happen to you as they happen?
1: No, no, I'm not one of these people who's like super planned, who has a grand vision, et cetera, et cetera. I find those to be mostly constructed stories, even for the people who claim to be that way. Um, For me, it was, it started out with wanting to build systems that I could control. You could imagine that I lived in this chaotic household, and I loved things that, that were predictable, that worked well, etc. Um, and uh, and so there I was, and I saw um, I was fairly old. I think I was 13 years old or so, uh, 12 or 13 years old when I saw my first computer, and um, it blew me away. And I was like, okay, this is this is amazing. So many things we do by hand, I can automate, and uh, and so there's so much to do. And I started building things. I started building an OS for this machine. I started building a compiler for it, et cetera, et cetera. I had a Commodore 64 that I loved dearly, <laughs> uh, did a lot of games for it and, and so on. And, um, uh, and then that led me down this path of, you know, I, I want to study this. this is, there's so much depth here uh, that I need to go to wherever the top places where this is taught and learn everything there is about building cool systems on it. So that's what got me going. Um, and uh, it was it was frankly it was easier to go from the high school I was at to the United States than to, to go back into the Turkish system and and, uh, and compete in that in that giant uh, you know one one and a half million uh, yeah. exam again to place into a university. Yeah. Uh, and luckily enough, I got a scholarship from Princeton that um, you know that addressed the uh, the financial side of this equation. So it was great. I ended up going to Princeton to study computer science, but I started out. Uh, you know, towards the end of high school, I was really excited about AI. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, well, I really need to, uh, I need to bring intelligence. I need to bring artificially intelligent agents. Wouldn't it be awesome if I could program robots that did stuff for us? Yeah. And, um, and then quickly I realized that, Princeton. in my first year, I took a, I took a, um, a, a cognitive uh, science studies course, uh, cognitive science course. And I realized that AI was a long ways off. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, even then, and even in the United States, all too often computers were crashing. We were having computer failures all the time. Those of you who were around, you know, uh, the blue screen of death had not been invented yet. Computers were down, you'd go to the bank in the US. You know, there's a chance it was down too. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the blue screens of death started to happen. And of course, there's no shortage of all sorts of transportation accidents and so on. So building infrastructure that works is really hard and and that point kind of you know struck home with me and i was like sure ai is a nice thing to have but it's a luxury we can't afford right now as a planet we really need things we can count on and uh, so i quickly changed my my interests uh, away from ai away from sort of high level stuff to very low level systems building and uh, i've stuck with it since Um, and the field has gotten even deeper even more exciting and the kinds of things we now know how to build are far more complicated than they used to be a couple decades ago, uh, but so much more fun.
0: What do you make of um, AI technology today? Has it come around? Do you think we have the infrastructure to make it work? I know a lot of things are working on it, but kind of in the background, I'm not sure. When I hear about AI, I kind of know what that means, but I don't think I really actually know what it's doing. Like, has it kind of progressed to where you're, or has it progressed to a, a place where you think it's really working these days?
1: Um, yeah, I have a lot of concerns about AI. So in certain areas, in certain domains, it's progressed immensely, far beyond uh, what, uh, what I expected actually. And, um, and so, um, so, I mean, in some areas it's great. You know, the ability to, you know, whatever optical character recognition, to use uh, computers you know, for vision, for simple vision tasks. It's, we can automate mundane tasks. What I worry very much about is bias built into these, these things. The fact that we don't know how they operate doesn't faze me. I don't know how most people don't don't operate. You know, it's somehow we have developed the kinds of techniques that, you know, if I'm dealing with an adult, I know what to expect. Children are a different thing. I also have a set of expectations for them as well, but their neural networks are not as developed and and we all make adjustments for it. Um, For computer stuff, um, you know, a lot of, you see a lot of uh, sort of hardliners, the line that if i don't understand how it works then it's worthless to me uh, i'm definitely not one of them i'm perfectly comfortable with large training sets and well-trained uh, machinery uh, the problem of course is if the training set has any kind of bias in it machinery can amplify it and uh, i have no doubt that uh, that these systems are going to excel at uh, things that make people money because right. that's where they're applied the most you know showing people ads i'm sure they're going to figure that out. I worry that in the process of trying to optimize money making, they might make choices that are societally super suboptimal. So they show a different kinds of, you know, your experience going and, 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 and you know, browsing Amazon might be very different than mine, might be very different than, than, uh, than a kid uh, living not very far from me uh, here in Manhattan, depending on the neighborhood he's in. So that worries me very much. Yeah, I, it believe, reminds in me... I believe in uh, equal opportunity so uh, so that might not actually take place
0: yeah it reminds me um there's a story just about a year or two ago with twitter and its algorithm if you put a picture of a white person and a picture of a black person in a tweet it would always focus on the, the white person for the the preview of what you would see um and then there's also news about um the the uh rates that people would get shown for like travel sites you know for like travelocity or whatever um it, it would differ depending on you know who the who that AI was picking up, like, you know, for black communities, I think it was higher rates than for white communities and just crazy stuff like that. That I, I totally share that concern with you.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah so... I worry about differential pricing. I worry about <clears throat> uh, us getting charged differently depending on, on who we are, our stations in life, and so on and so forth, and or based on, on intrinsic factors, you know, just because you have a certain, certain level of pigmentation, you get a totally different experience browsing the internet. Absolutely. Uh, that would just deepen societal device. And I'm very worried about that.
0: And that's one of the great promises of web three is that it takes that middleman out who can have those levers and those algorithms that do that um, for, for, you know, centralized sites. Um, so you went to Princeton uh, and then uh, you were thinking, well, you thought at first that more study was out of reach because of the, the money probably like it would be expensive um but you realized that you could do a master's and a phd at the same time and they'd pay you to do it um it, so and then that's sort of how you you went to i think washington for grad school and then you ended up getting out and, and started teaching at uh cornell soon after that is that correct
1: exactly right exactly right i went i went to a phd program thinking i'll do this for a few years get to get the masters for free um, but then they sucked me in because they were feeding us with all these awesome problems, really, really hard to solve that no one knew the answers to. And it was up to us to to solve them. It was a fantastic environment. And I loved every bit of it. And that's what convinced me to become an academic.
0: Do, do you know the, the term nerd sniping? Has that ever come across?
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: That, that's it's <laughs> no. nerd sniping, right? You got nerd sniped. And, and here you are 30 years later. And, I nerd yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about one of the more interesting um, facets of your early career was with karma that you created. And um, this was, uh, I'll let you explain it, but it it was sort of um, using one of the first proof of work protocols that was out there. Um, This wasn't the Satoshi version. It was by two researchers. One was named uh, Dwork, I believe. Um, Could you just tell a little bit about that and, and what, um, what what their proof-of-work system was and then wh- how you used it for what you were trying to accomplish?
1: Sure. The core proof-of-work idea is that uh, to get some service, you need to prove that you have done some amount of computationally difficult tasks. Uh, this was first provo- uh, proposed by Cynthia Dwork and Fiat Naur. Mm-hmm. So Dwork is the are the first two inventors of this idea. And... Uh, I built the first um, uh, coin system based on this uh, back in 2002. So that predates Satoshi by six years. And the idea was very simple. Back then, we were dealing with peer-to-peer systems. And uh, people who have used peer-to-peer systems, they know very well that people like to take resources from the peer-to-peer system. They don't like to contribute back. So you need to rate limit this somehow. And my idea was simple, um, to, to join the network, you need to solve a proof of work puzzle. You need to have your machine do some proof of work. And when you do, you're awarded an initial purse. And then with that purse, uh, you, get to, you get to take resources, but when you run out and you want to continue being, being part of the system, then you, need to, uh, you will now need to contribute resources back. Um, and the application, the main application I saw for this at the time was, um, was peer-to-peer file sharing. That you can't just download files; you have to upload them every now and then. So that that was that was way ahead of its time, uh, six years before Satoshi. And uh, it so let me be clear about two things: it lacked two things that Satoshi brought. We were not using proof of work in the same way that Satoshi used it. We were not using it as part of the consensus protocol. So um, uh, so that's one difference. He added that brilliant addition that uh, I very much respect. And the second thing that's different from the Satoshi uh, uh, attitude, if you will, is that we saw this as a way to fix peer-to-peer systems at large. Satoshi saw it as a way to change world finance. So his vision was far more extensive. So I was younger then, and I did not have the vision. I didn't think it was, you know, karma would replace USD. Uh, Satoshi did, and, uh, uh, and so... So that's uh, sort of what happened there. And uh, it's very well cited among academics, uh, but uh, you know, you gotta get the timing right and you gotta get the vision right, I think.
0: Yeah. What was it like um, in academia for you back then when you were going down this route? Were you getting any support or was it kind of an uphill battle or what were your colleagues and sort of like, what was Cornell telling you about this area of study at that time?
1: So peer-to-peer networks was just just beginning to get launched in the early 2000s. And um, there I was 2002 doing Karma. I did a whole lot of other things like credence, peer-to-peer reputation, uh, all sorts of peer-to-peer system measurements and so on. It was a great time to be there. All the, you know, every one of the the bright uh, students coming into Cornell uh, was excited about the area. So I ended up doing a lot of work that I'm very proud of. Um, My colleagues uh, and the area in general, the systems area in general, tends to consist of researchers that, you know, I would say 50% are at academic institutions, but another 50% are at uh, the blue chip institutions of the world. They're at Microsoft, Mm -hmm. they're at Google, they're at whatever else. So um, especially the industrial researchers saw no benefit. They're like, why would you do this? Why not trust us? Why yeah. not trust Microsoft to run your infrastructure? Why not trust Google, etc.? So, um, so, so there was slowly there started to be some kind of pushback against peer to peer. That people started saying, you know, uh, there's no need for this. It doesn't solve anything that you can't solve with a little bit of trust. You know this kind of thing, and uh, and so so that was one. And then the other thing I got from my Cornell colleagues, my mentors at Cornell, was you know look. This peer-to-peer karma payment system seems really interesting, but uh, but you got to find another topic because you'll never get any funding for this. And uh, um, the nation at large is concerned about terrorist financing. It's 2002, the year after 9-11, and people were frazzled. We were all frazzled. And, uh, and so uh, they said, and rightfully, they said, you won't be able to find any federal funding for research in this area. You should find something... That is more in line with, you know, industrial goals, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I did not push karma uh, anymore after that. And I think that was the right call. I wasn't anonymous. There was no interest. And uh, from from a federal funding agency point of view.
0: That's really interesting. Um, it makes me wonder if the biases against crypto were there before crypto was even there. I mean, the, the, a lot of what you're just saying. Oh, since, absolutely. Yeah, it just has carried through and maybe people don't understand that this kind of skepticism and the centralized, you know, like you saying, blue chip, kind of like what well, you don't need to do this kind of goes back way before even, you know, the Bitcoin white paper.
1: Oh, it goes back even more, even before me, uh, in the nineties, there were systems designed, uh, to, um, uh, to introduce micropayments without a bank. Mm-hmm. And uh, a Millicent is a system that's that's in this category. There are many others. And uh, they all failed. And uh, uh, they failed because the banks killed it all off. So uh, if you talk to those... I was part of I mean, part of the circles where those things were discussed. And um, uh, so when you talk to them, everyone will tell you that the incumbents will kill you. Yeah. So you got to be very, very careful around them. Um, so 90s had those... Uh, peer-to-peer payment systems get get killed off. Um, the uh, karma, like these fully decentralized systems, uh, they uh, you know they wouldn't have been funded. Um, that was all there. All, all, you know, I would even say after Bitcoin, it took a good five years for people to realize, hey, this thing's here to stay. Yeah. Right. The first five years, kudos to everybody who participated in that era.
0: That you just reminded me of one of my favorite details in the book that you turned me on to was the HTML protocol had a field in it for how there would be payments in a web embedded in a website, right? And then it just said basically something to the effect of uh, not available or something, right? <laughs> Do you recall that?
1: exactly is. it's not implemented yeah the very i think the very first if not maybe the maybe the first revision but i think it was the very first version of the html protocol had um, had a field to facilitate peer to peer payments for content and uh, never implemented nobody uses it etc so um, but even the uh, early visionaries uh, on uh, you know when when the web was taking place they understood the importance of getting business flows into the protocols getting yeah. payments into the protocol
0: yeah um yeah, it's amazing, because obviously, an easy way to explain crypto today is like, it's the internet of money. And so that's, you know, but there was there were people trying to do that back in the 80s and 90s. And, and but it just never quite worked out for all those reasons you're saying. Um, so let's jump forward a little bit. Um, obviously, you were you were um, big in the Ethereum world, um, and very much involved there. Um, the one thing, uh, the last time we spoke in January, I believe we did a q&a, if you recall, and you told me, the story of of when the idea for Avalanche kind of came to you. And it was, um, as you, as you told me then uh, the, you were having, a, I think it was a, a week long conference at Cornell and uh, Vitalik Buterin was there and Vlad Zamfir was there and they were starting to share with you the early ideas around how Ethereum was going to change from proof of work to proof of stake. Like I used to call it ETH 2.0. Um, and you sort of were like, this is going to be hard for Ethereum. But what if what if we go away and sort of create a new blockchain system that from the get go is proof of stake and has all these other different implementations in it? Um, Can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Because I find that that sort of origin story fascinating.
1: Sure. Um, let's see. So this all started out with exactly that discussion. Uh, a number of us from Cornell met with uh, Vitalik and Vlad uh, in a multi-day sort of a workshop to try to see how ETH two could be realized. And uh, and I tried to get from and there were other people there as well from Ethereum. Um, and uh, I tried to extract sort of you know how they saw the world and how they wanted to approach this problem. And it got so complicated that uh, you know there were like layers upon layers uh, component after component. And I just thought, okay, this is going to be, it, it might, may, may pan out, it may not pan out, but it's so complex that there is no way they're fitting all this in. In my opinion, it's just not going to happen. And it turns out Ethereum two did happen, but almost none of the things I heard on that, on that, uh, in that workshop seven years ago, almost seven years ago, six, six, seven years ago, almost none of them made it into Ethereum two. So, uh, um, and uh, It may or may not work, but for sure, even if it does work, it's going to be so complicated that, uh, that the resulting system is not necessarily going to be something that I would trust. So I thought I need to go back to the drawing board and think about re- much simpler processes. And, uh, and there were really two options at the time. You know, one option is you push on proof of work. You try to make proof of work better, but at the, at the root of proof of work lies energy consumption. Yeah. And it's not good for the environment. And I thought, okay, this is this is this is going to be uh, this is going to be incredibly inefficient in terms of energy, and it it, it conflicts with my values. So the other approach is, uh, well, we have all these protocols. It's like there's so many of them. You want a new protocol? I'll give you I'll give you an unused protocol from the literature. There are many, many, many dozens, maybe hundreds, could be even more than a thousand different consensus protocols out there. So. Uh, but they're all in the same category of classical protocols and so I looked at those and I thought okay these classical protocols they are at the end of the day they're just voting protocols a small set of people vote and then they collect votes from each other and because you can't trust an entity you kind of have to separately collect these votes and uh, it becomes incredibly inefficient the more people you have who are voting then the more inefficient this thing becomes. Mm -hmm. It's n squared in the amount of complexity that's going on. Um, I, as a participant, need to know that, you know, uh, on the order of n other people who are participating in this have signed off on a bill, on a a transaction. And so it works well for 100 people because there are 100 other messages to collect. If you've got 1,000 and you've got 1,000 you know, messages to collect and in aggregate you have a million messages, if you go to 10,000, it balloons up, right? N squared is, uh, is, you know, grows really, really fast. So, um, so I was thinking about that and I was like, okay, this is not the way to do this. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then one of the insights we had was, hey, could we get by with lighter messaging? Do I really need to hear from everybody? Mm-hmm. Um if uh you know all I need to make sure is we in aggregate are okay we are making the same decision I don't necessarily have to hear from everybody for me to say that, yes, everybody has seen this transaction and has okayed it. If I hear from enough people and they've heard from enough people and they heard from enough people, etc., then perhaps mathematically there's a magic tipping point where I don't have to hear from everyone, I just hear from some number of people and then I click Mm -hmm. and I I make it final. And it turns out the the magic formula is there and uh, and it's incredibly early. You don't have to talk to uh, vast numbers of people. You can cut out huge amounts of communication and achieve enormous savings in terms of both messaging complexity, amount of time spent, etc. And that's how we arrived at uh, what what was initially the, the very insight for the Avalanche protocol was, okay, well, so uh, this thing can be incredibly, incredibly performant, incredibly fast, incredibly scalable. So uh, that's how we got started. But then there was, of course, a lot more development after that.
0: Yeah, so... I think this is a good time to, can you explain for listeners just how Avalanche works? I think you have three different chains and then there are different, um, some of them have different consensus protocols and like, it just at a high level, kind of give us, what is the architecture that that you guys accomplished with Avalanche and how, how has that allowed it to perform in ways that, you know, Ethereum or other layer ones um, aren't aren't yet performing at?
1: Okay, well then there are, there are two things I want to harp on. One of them I already touched upon, which is the consensus protocol itself. Every other proof of stake protocol that you hear about, whether it's Solana, Ethereum 2, uh, whatever else it might be, they all use all-to-all messaging and they all do essentially signature accrual. So you, there's a small number of people who vote on any given block, they collect signatures, and at some point they say, okay, enough signatures have been collected, this thing, uh, is part of uh, of the record, is, part, is now a permanent part of the record. So that's how they work. And i mentioned also already that this process is not going to scale well in the number of participants to the system. Now, Avalanche works differently. I mentioned how it that does. So uh, you essentially, instead of asking everybody, you ask some number of people who ask others who ask others, yeah. and therefore you get coverage uh, even if some of the people in the middle might be lying, uh, you do this enough many times, and the magic of the math works out such that it's a very small number of rounds. So in a, on the order of you know, 15 rounds or so allows you to achieve consensus among tens of thousands of nodes. This is unheard of in this space. When I was a grad student, if somebody came up to me and said, someday somebody will invent such a thing, I would laugh at them, laugh at them, <laughs> laugh them out of court. and. Uh, and then it turns out that, you know, we now built a whole system around it and it does this on a daily basis. Every second there are blocks being committed using this exact scheme. I am just, just every day, you know, on, on days when I feel down, I kind of try to remember this and, yeah. you know, and, and, and pull myself up because it's an amazing accomplishment technically. But there is one other thing that, that differentiates, there are many other things that differentiate Avalanche, but there's one other thing at the architecture level that differentiates it, which is the following. Systems like Solana, systems like Ethereum, these are single chain systems. There is one virtual machine, uh, one validator set, and then one chain. And they just sort of go through that, those set of state transitions on the chain. They commit these transactions, they make adjustments, they execute smart contracts, etc. So that's what they do. Avalanche is multi-chain from the get-go, and it's not just three chains, it started out with three chains. You're an OG, so you remember the early days. Yeah. But by now we have, I don't know how many, I think there are at least uh, there are at least a dozen production quality, uh, high value bearing subnets on top of us. So, um, so uh, the way this system works, the way Avalanche works is, anybody can create a chain of their own. Those chains all use the Avalanche Consensus Protocol, they're super fast, uh, they don't have to share anything with the rest of the system. They have their own validator sets. So if you have a game that's using, uh, that, that's on an Avalanche subnet, um, that's doing your game transactions, and I have a DeFi application on my own subnet, the two of us have nothing to do with each other. Okay. If you have a load spike, it doesn't affect me. If you have congestion, it doesn't drive up my fees. And that's, an, an, I think, a very simple, yet incredibly effective observation. Mm-hmm. everybody fought me on this mat like when we said this is how we're going to do this everyone was like no that's not how you scale and it's like okay I guess you on the internet uh, know how to scale except you can't implement it whereas we believe that this will work and, uh, and now by now it's been proven um, our fees are consistently low our speeds are insanely high and uh, it's well, yeah, all us, due to this us, um, architecture what are, what and are some this speeds? architecture can absorb insane, insane growth
0: go ahead Sorry, what what are like what are some of the performance stats, like your transactions per second or, or stuff like that that you could share with us?
1: Sure. Um, so the time to finality for our transactions is on the order of one to two seconds. So this is what I say officially. If I go and measure it, the actual time to finality is seven hundred and forty milliseconds or so. So you submit a transaction. In under a second, that transaction has been finalized. It's permanent. It's not going to be reverted. Nobody else can say this. There are many other chains that do a lot of trickery, but you know, Solana is going to take on the order of 15 to 20 seconds for finality. Um, Ethereum 2 takes—I forget how many—but it takes uh, it takes on the order of you know at least two two and a half minutes. I don't want to say the wrong thing and have all the Maxis jump on my throat, <laughs> but it takes far longer uh, to. Uh, uh, they have blocks every 15 seconds and then f- finalization after a long string of blocks. Mm-hmm. Whereas we have finalization at every block, single slot finalization already. Um, and uh, we have blocks at every second. And if there is load, you can even issue more more uh, blocks per second uh, if you wanted to. So that's the, uh, the setup that we have. It's an insanely fast system. And uh, we are clearing... Uh, right now, we're clearing about fifty-five to sixty million transactions per month. Wow! So that's about two Ethereum's worth, and uh, we could, and that's unbounded. I could add more subnets and grow that number, and uh, more subnets are coming because of that that particular architecture.
0: Yeah, and I was doing some research on on late, the latest stuff on Avalanche, and uh, I was really impressed to see that you're going to be launching uh, episodes of an animated. TV show, uh, The Gimmicks, uh, from a, a company called TuneStar, And that's, that's actually going to be on mm-hmm. the Avalanche uh, blockchain, correct? And, and like, they have NFTs that are involved with it. And I mm-hmm. think that that sort of speaks to what you're talking about, because I don't think that's even, you know, possible in Ethereum's wildest dreams at this at this moment, at least.
1: No, no, I think uh, we are able to do things that, uh, that other chains can only dream of just because of the subnet architecture. We just signed a, an agreement with GRI, GREE, G-R-E-E, uh, which is a huge studio in Japan with a lot of titles, uh, game titles that I'm sure you've heard of, uh, like Civilization is one of them. It's an old title, uh-huh. yeah. uh, and, uh, but they have many, many others. They have about 30 million monthly active users, and so they are looking to move those games Onto avalanche subnets, uh, we're doing things with FEMA in disaster recovery. They have, want to have their own subnet for accounting, um, completely different domain. We're doing things with uh, with NFTs, of course. Uh, the NFT scene is burgeoning in uh, in avalanche, even in a bear market. So there's a lot of activity going on on chain, uh, all due to this uh, this partitioned architecture with dedicated uh, dedicated uh, chains for use different use cases.
0: Yeah, and so as, as you've been describing, all of these subnets are still under the Solana umbrella, and they're using the same consensus mechanism. Um,
1: avalanche umbrella, avalanche.
0: What did I say? Sorry. Avalanche umbrella. Man. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I don't Okay, sorry. Yeah, avalanche. <laughs> Solana um, has one change. Did I say that? Oh, geez. Okay, yeah. Apologies. So, yeah, everything is under yeah, the you Avalanche. you said Solana. Solana
1: has one chain. <laughs> um, they're having issues with that chain every now and then. Yeah, we yeah. have many, many, many chains in yeah, parallel.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't let me get away with that. Uh, slip of the tongue. So, yeah, these are all under the Avalanche umbrella. Um, but then there's another kind of – there. there's a new newer development, newish. Uh, it, you know, it's bridges. It's where you're going to bridge from Avalanche to Solana or Avalanche to Ethereum. How um, – and that's so, you know, somebody who wants to do something on av- Avalanche can do it there and then they can move some assets over to Ethereum and do something over there. That's the idea. Um, how important do you think that, uh, that these bridges are going forward, like in the, you know, for the the architecture of the entire ecosystem?
1: They are going to be critical. So we already have a fair number of different different blockchains and a fair number of services. Um, in an ideal world, what you want is for assets to be processed by the services that are best suited for them or by the services that are best suited to the needs of a user. Users might want cheapness, they might want speed, they might want liquidity, whatever else, the, whatever they might want, they should be able to take these assets and move to the chain where that service resides. Yeah. So I predicted that we would see a, 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 a war of bridges about, uh, about a year ago. And uh, we're in the middle of that war. There's a lot of people competing to build better and better bridges, and we see that the chains with the best bridges tend to attract uh, the uh, best bridges and the best experience tend to attract users and retain them. Um, the bridge that we built is is one of its kind. We introduced some new technology to the space that nobody else was using, um, and uh, we built a one of a kind of a bridge that is incredibly secure and incredibly fast and cheap. So it uses uh, trusted execution technologies to uh, make sure that the bridge is safe and secure, that um, uh, the funds, uh, the keys that control the bridge funds are kept out of the hands of everybody, including the bridge operator. So these are non-custodial bridges. Okay. So there isn't a sysadmin who could take, you know, abscond with the coins and the bridges and so forth. Um, and. Uh, And using that bridge, uh, we ended up bridging huge amounts. Maybe I think at its peak, it was uh, $7 billion worth of assets were uh, bridged over to to Avalanche from Ethereum. Uh, Even as we speak, it's more than a billion dollars, I believe. And um, uh, also uh, we just very recently introduced the Bitcoin bridge and it has about 90 million dollars worth of bitcoin um in in, you know uh, people have bridged 90 million dollars worth of bitcoin over to to avalanche actually they bridged more and then you know about 120 i think but then they did whatever they wanted to do on avalanche and moved back sure so you can do that too that's totally fine um but like uh, what i'm trying to get at is
0: yeah oh sorry go ahead
1: go ahead go ahead ahead. no i want to hear what you want to get
0: um there have been you know, th- this year alone, several bridge hacks and, and incidents, you know, there's, there's a wormhole, uh, Ronin, Nomad, the list goes on. What, um, what do you think is, I know there are probably different situations, but is there any kind of, uh, overarching issue that these have? Like, is the security not just quite there yet or are people not like you're saying, um, it needs to be a kind of a trustless bridge. Is that not happening in these other instances?
1: people are trying to make these bridge hacks into something that they're not. Okay. So, um, uh, and people are trying to make a big deal out of very small differences. So, um, Vitalik, for example, has said that, okay, bridges are unsafe. You have to use a roll up. Uh, none of the hacks that, that we saw would affect you know, would have affected the bridge, but would not have affected the roll up. In fact, the exact issue that gave rise to a bridge hack would have given rise to a roll up hack as well. So uh, people are trying to overload this issue and they're trying to make it more contentious than it is. Um, Deep down, what you have to have is when you have two different chains, you have to have some software in the middle that uh, is implemented in the most secure fashion possible. And if it has any secrets, those secrets have to be kept in the, with utmost secrecy and confidentiality. And um, if there is ever a, a failure of one of the one of the chains, then rolling back of one of the chains should not leave the other chain in an inconsistent state, or it should leave the other chain in a state that's Uh, you know, that that's recoverable. So the Vitalik point only applies to the third issue and none of the existing problems, none of the problems we've seen have to do with that one. Vitalik, in my opinion, is worried about a fringe case scenario that uh, would actually be very important for roll-ups. So if you want to do roll-ups, then you have to do it the way he's saying it. Um, If you have bought into the, the form of the solution, then, then 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 you also then sort of a self-sealing worldview then you need to do roll-ups. Yeah. Um, but there are many different ways of actually bridging disparate blockchains. And there, there are different ways of implementing these bridges. We've just seen that these new chains typically their run times are insecure. Or some of the, the bridge approaches, we found that a lot of these bridges are implemented in a very fragile way and, uh, and uh, they just aren't really trustworthy from any engineering standpoint. Okay. And uh, we started out by building a bridge in a conventional manner. And we saw that those bridges were not really to be trusted. They're just, that technology is just too fragile, uh, fractures easily, breaks very easily. And then we ended up building our bridge based on a different technology. And that technology both brings confidentiality in a very strong way into this thing. Even the operators can't get at the, the funds and, uh, and it also brings in, uh, uh, it brings less dependence on external parties. We don't need oracles to tell us. We still need some oracles, but we don't need on-chain oracles to interact with the bridge. We don't need on-chain smart contracts to make a bridge happen. And so the kinds of bugs that we saw, um, they affect you because existing bridges other than ours, they have a large, um, they require a large trusted computing base on the chain itself and any flaw in that base causes the bridge to be hacked yeah so um just for people who don't know the number one bridge in all of crypto in terms of tvl is the uh, the bridge that we built and there's a reason for that and that's total so, um, value locked uh, and i think yeah total value lock tvl yeah and uh and i do think that you know there are other like one of the things we're not getting into and i hope the the the, the, the audience will be able to pick up on uh, is sort of a, at a level above the technology. It isn't really how you build the goddamn door. It, it's it's really about your attitude, your mindset when building the door. If if um, you know if you're gonna build a door, if you're committed to the shape of the door, how the, how it should be shaped before you start to build it, you're gonna end up with funny looking doors. And <laughs> you know like the roll ups, like none of them are are trustless. They, they just don't work. Um, uh, so. Uh, if instead you're a proper engineer, you're scientifically grounded, you are not vested, your ego is not tied up in the outcome, and you just want to build the best damn door there is, then you have far more possibilities open to you. You have a different attitude and approach. That's really the, one of the key things that differentiates us. We're scientists at heart. Yeah. We're not one of these religious cults uh, that, you know, that whatever it is that spouts a lot of Greek letters at people hoping to dazzle them into, into submission.
0: So, speaking of total value, um, the crypto winter is, you know, continuing here. Uh, we, I was just writing the other day; uh, almost two trillion dollars of, of market cap is gone from a year ago. How, how is that affecting you guys at Avalanche? And what do you think? Um, where, when you look out into the future, where do you, where do you, do you see the upturn coming? Or are we still in for this for a little more, uh, a little while longer?
1: Great question. I can I can answer it from a personal perspective. So for me, you know, this thing could not have come any sooner. I was greatly relieved when the bear market came because in a bull market, it doesn't matter what you've got. You can just go into like, you know, uh, shall I name names? I won't name names, but you can go into that mode where um, you know you create seventeen different coins. Every one of them flops, but it doesn't matter because, you know, you already got your exit. I mean, there are people like this who constantly create new coins and new systems. And as long as the bull market is on, they make money and and they just hop from project to project. Um, You start creating unsustainable circular structures, you know, Ponzi-tronic things that, that, uh, that people buy into. And if you have a good Ponzi going for some short period of time it can absorb all the growth, right? We saw this with Luna. Luna was absorbing all the growth. All the money coming into crypto was going to Luna and Anchor. Yeah. And um, so these things are crazy rides. It's like a roller coaster. The guy next to you is doing something really questionable and um, you don't know what to do. You're not gonna compete with them unless you're an idiot, right? You don't wanna get into the same business as him. We saw some of the projects jump in and take the bait and create their Luna copies. And I, I thought that was really, really odd. I think that's, that's a huge show of weakness. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, in a bull market, anything goes, too much is happening, it's crazy anyway, and uh, it's go, go, go world, whereas bear markets is when the winners are made. This is the true test of the longevity of a project. The people who sit through these things, they're going to be here for a long time. They're the ones that are dedicated. So I'm loving it in many ways from a personal perspective. Of course, it affects me deeply that the entire space lost so much value. Um, so that's a big concern of mine. But, I'll say this as well, um, I live in Manhattan, I do talk to uh, Wall Street all the time, and uh, it's so different, Matt. You know, when you and I first met, when you, we, you were doing the DAO hack, uh, I don't know how many years ago that was, it was a different world. It was, we didn't know that Ethereum was going to survive, mm-hmm. right? It was like the second big chain with new technology in it. Yeah. And we didn't know that, that the entire space was going to survive. Right. You know, Bitcoin was doing Bitcoin things, but we didn't know how big it was going to be. Now, when I talk to people, it's clear that crypto is here to stay. Like, sure, you know, things will go up and down. Will it go up from here, down from here? Who knows? But it's here to stay. So it's going Like Wall Street people, they will tell you up front. They're like, hey, you want to see our code, how bad it is? Your stuff is so much better. I've had this said to me so many times. These people are, are just chomping at the bit to change what they do. And they look at all the DGEN activities. They're not very different from what they know and they do professionally as well. They're looking for ways to apply their, their tools and tricks onto a regulated or compliant version of the same. So this space is here. Um, so now the final question is, you know, will it go up from here or down from here? I can't say that, um, but I can say this thing because it is taught in Econ 101, which is something called a business cycle. Businesses go through this up and down cycle, it's cyclic, it's taught, so I'm not making a price prediction on anything, but I will say that things come and go, and, um, and crypto is here to stay, it's emerged as an asset class of its own, so I'm very bullish in the very long term of uh, what, what we will be able to, to manage with crypto, we will build systems that the world has never seen, we will get rid of compliance for the most part, because we can build those rules into the fabric of the system. Mm-hmm. We can build more fair, more democratic financial services. And these are the kinds of things that get me really excited.
0: Okay, so speaking of here for the long term, what do you make of Elon Musk now owning Twitter and some of the uh, changes that he is you know, putting into place and, and some of the, the vision that he has for, for Twitter? Because as I'm sure everyone who listens to this knows, Crypto Twitter is kind of, you know, a bit of a town hall for a lot of people um, in this space, but it looks like you could be changing quite a bit here going forward under Musk. What, what are your thoughts on that?
1: So, uh, yeah, you know, Elon Musk is a, is a divisive figure. There, there are a lot of people who love him. There are a lot of people who hate him. And uh, so, um, you know, uh, I don't want to sound like either extreme, but I will say the following. Twitter was one of the most, um, I don't know what. Uh, sluggish companies I've ever seen in my life they were not innovating in any shape or form technologically it's the same damn format they spent I don't know how many years on the edit button um, on my Android if I have a threaded set of tweets and I'm editing them my copy and paste is disabled I don't know why you know <laughs> not always but sometimes it's disabled yeah. this is the kind of thing that just drives you up the wall it's kind of like that window that doesn't close why is this and why why or spaces Twitter spaces why does it make my phone get hot and then drop like 2,000 people all at once? My whole space disappears. Everybody gets upset. Is this hard to solve? It should not be. Yeah. And so somehow they did not have the internal culture to innovate. Now, um, to the extent that Elon brings fresh, fresh pair of eyes, a different attitude, a more engineering approach, a more can-do attitude, I'm all for it. To the extent that he ties it up with his political goals... He starts messing up the social structure, then, uh, then I start to get concerned. Now, suddenly, the quality of discussions can drop. One of my pet peeves and one of the things that I will be using as a litmus test that I should share with you is simply the use of AI to, uh, to suss out bot networks. Mm-hmm. So all big companies and every government, without exception, I'm sure, every government is using huge bot networks to, to shape what we see and think. If you think you have an original thought, I'm pretty sure that I don't have 99% of my thoughts are not original, they're planted there. What I think is cool, what I think is uncool, it's planted. And that planting happens by these external parties manipulating what I see, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's elsewhere, that's certainly on Twitter. And, um, and so the old management was completely unable to tackle this problem. And we know that state actors in all, place, all sorts of places around the world were taking advantage of this To control what their citizens see Um, so I have hopes that that Elon can bring in some AI technology here to make it better and uh, I will see if that happens if that happens I'll be super happy the content moderation stuff I'm really worried about and we'll see the speed at which he tackles these issues he can screw one thing up too early and then suddenly maybe it's all all bets are off who knows yeah but uh, I'm guardedly optimistic for now
0: that's great Well, Goon, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it, as always. Um, I wanted to leave you with one thought, or or not not a thought, but I wondered if you recalled when we spoke in January for the Q&A. At the end of those, I always asked, like, oh, who would you recommend that I speak to uh, for the next one? Uh, Do do you, uh, by any chance, remember who you suggested? No, I don't. Uh, It was uh, Duquan at Terra Labs and Luna, and so
1: oh good That was good a, that was how, how did that go did you did you manage to talk to him
0: no i didn't and I, I i couldn't reach him but uh you know with everything that happened uh with luna and ust um you know <laughs> i was looking back at that interview the other day you can and, fault
1: and, me for many and, things but you can't fault me for being behind the times no i'm usually usually too far ahead of the of, <laughs> of my time and uh, i end up facing a lot of issues before others but yeah, Do Kuan is uh, would have been a great person to to talk to about uh, Anchor and what it was doing, yeah, and uh, and and obviously Terra Luna its structure and so on. It was uh, uh, it it was an eye opening exercise for all of crypto Twitter. It affected all of us. It was, it was yeah. a deep cut for all of us. Yeah,
0: yeah, we're still feeling those effects for sure. Well, again, thank you so much, Guyen. It's always mm-hmm. a pleasure, and uh, best of luck with Avalanche. I think you guys are doing amazing things, and uh, it's it's just exciting to see how this keeps developing uh, as time goes on.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's always a pleasure to chat with you.
0: That's it for this episode of Decent People. We are produced by Matt Solon. Music is courtesy of Brian Duncan and Kareem Iams. Take care.